0: We have a Bible with you, turn again to the book of Colossians. Now the 20th time, I've said that in some form or another. This is the 20th message on Colossians. We started back in September of 2010. We'll have one more week next week to finish up the book. And next week I'll begin that message with a reminder of the big picture and the flow of thought in this great letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, especially when we take as long as we did to go through this book, usually looking at four verses, five verses, six, seven, eight verses a week. We need to remind ourselves both at the beginning and at the end of the big picture of the letter because it's a letter and it was intended to be read and studied. It was intended to be read in one sitting. It was intended to pass out to other churches, as we'll see next week. And yet, it's also God's word, inspired down to the very words themselves. And so, we're right to, to pick. We're we're right to prod a little bit. We're we're right to get out the the pick and the rake and to look at what it says, even in the minutia of God's word here. So next week we'll look at the big picture, and because we'll do that next week, let me. This week, just jump right into our passage, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6 this week, as we talk about prayer and proclamation. Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison. Pray that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, I said we wouldn't take note of the flow of thought in the book of Colossians, but Let's take note of the flow of thought here in these verses themselves that we we just read. I think there are three components to what Paul is saying in these verses. The first is a general call to pray in verse 2. A general call to pray with a few instructions about how to do it, how to approach it. Then a second component, verses 3 and 4, a specific prayer request about how they might pray for Paul's missionary work. And then Paul gives some specific instructions, specific things he's asking them to pray for about his missionary work and the spread of the gospel in the world. And then a third component to this passage, verses 5 and 6, it's a call for them, the Colossians, and by extension, every Christian who reads this, to live out and proclaim the gospel themselves. And again, he gives several specifics under this heading. Now you can see how one theme leads Paul To another, you can see the stream of consciousness here, right? A general call to pray, then camping out on one specific prayer request about the spread of the gospel in the world, and then reminding these Colossian Christians, and as I said, by extension, every Christian who reads this, about their own responsibility to preach Christ, to live for Christ in this world. Now, you might remember that the book of Ephesians and Colossians are related. We said back at the beginning, and referred to it a few times in this series, that Paul was likely constructing, writing this this doctrinal treatise of the book of Ephesians. Yes, it's a letter, but it's almost like a sermonized letter. It has a lot of structure to it. You can tell it's thought out. And while it seems like, while he was writing that letter of Ephesians, he gets word of the problem in Colossae. There's some false teaching going around in that city and the surrounding cities. And so he shoots off a letter of warning and concern and, Most of the false teaching that he's addressing is in Colossians chapter 2. But after some introductory stuff in chapter 1, and then after the false teaching being addressed in chapter 2, he gets into some specific things, chapter 3 and chapter 4. And and this is very Ephesians-like. It's like Paul gives us the cliff notes of the whole book of Ephesians, or at least the second half of Ephesians, in the second half of the book of Colossians. Let me show you what I mean just so we see the parallel once again in Ephesians. Look over to Ephesians 6. Look at verse 18. We'll read this just to see the parallel again. And here's the parallel on prayer and proclamation in Ephesians 6. Paul says there, praying at all times in the Spirit, With all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador, an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Well, you can see the overlap A lot of overlap there. But back to Colossians 4. Let's dig in to what we said was the flow of thought here in these verses. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. We see first a call to pray. A general call to pray in verse 2. And then he gets into some specifics. So he says, pray steadfastly. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Those two words, continue steadfastly, tell us a lot about how we should approach prayer and what we should aim for in prayer. Just think of synonyms for those words, synonyms for continue. What does that imply? What what does that mean? It means that prayer should be regular. It should be routine. It should be consistent. It should be persevering. Continue, don't give up. Don't have seasons where, where it fades away. Instead, keep going, and keep going with discipline. Continue implies doing it when you don't want to. Continue steadfastly. When he says steadfastly, I think he means earnestly, seriously, lively, energetically. This should be our approach to prayer. At least it should be our aim. We never will be done. These things will never be accomplished. We'll never say, there, now my prayer is to the level of being continual and steadfast. The very nature of these things is that it's ongoing and you keep pursuing them. Pray steadfastly. He says, pray watchfully, verse 2. Being watchful in it. Related to the continuing and the steadfastness of it is that it needs to be watchful a word that would have implied and conjured up the idea in the minds of the Colossians of a guard, a soldier, on watch in the night, perhaps standing on the city wall and watching for intruders, watching for the enemy encroaching upon them. Being watchful is a concept you see a lot in Scripture. Being watchful means you shouldn't be sleepy. Watchful is contrasted with sleepiness in scripture. It's contrasted with forgetfulness in scripture. If you're on guard as the soldier on the wall, don't forget what you're up there doing. Quit playing Tetris or crazy birds. What is it called? Not crazy birds. What is it? Angry birds. That's right. My kids know that. Uh, as your kids do, I'm sure. Continue. Be watchful. Don't be forgetful. Don't forget what you're up there to do. Don't fall asleep and then be vulnerable. Even the 30th night, after 29 peaceful, quiet, unthreatening nights, you can't sleep on the next. Be prepared. Not just stay awake and Don't forget what you're up there to do, but be prepared so that when something is threatening, you're ready to do the next action. Again, this concept of being watchful is used many times in scripture in a variety of ways. Scripture tells us we should be watchful for different things. And I think Paul probably has in mind all of them when he tells us that we should be watchful in prayer. So hopefully as you're Looking at a passage like this, maybe you read this passage before we came this morning, and you thought, well, what would it look like to be watchful in prayer? What do I watch for? Well, you look at what Paul says about being watchful, you look at what Jesus says about being watchful, and you see things like this. Be watching yourself. Watch Luke 21, verse 34, Jesus said, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. Or like Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, Keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. Watch your life, your behavior. Watch your thinking, your theology, your teaching. Watch for sin and temptation, we're told. Jesus said in Matthew 26, Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. Or the way Peter puts it, 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil is like a roaring lion. He's roaming about seeking people to devour. Be aware, be on guard. Watch yourself even specifically for the sin, the destructive sin of self-righteousness. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 6, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The leaven. What did he mean? Well, we can't go into that passage and look. And I'll tell you what it means, though. He means beware of self-righteousness. The leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees is such that it it grows and it permeates and spreads. Beware, be watchful for the leaven of self-righteousness in your own heart and life. Of course, watch out for false teaching. Colossians 2 is all about watching out for false teaching. And as I said, in a sense, the whole book of Colossians, this letter, is written for the purpose of warning about false teaching. He's showing them how to watch out for false teaching. Like he also said in Romans 16, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine which you've been taught. Watch out for troublemakers. Watch out, of course, for the needs of others. This is obvious, isn't it? Be on the lookout. Be looking for opportunities The language of Hebrews 10 is to stir up love and good works in each other. Be watchful for opportunities to help others and to pray for others and how to speak to others. Sometimes words of admonishment. Sometimes words of encouragement. Be watching for Jesus' return. Now, this is probably the most frequent way that that whole concept of being watchful, being alert, don't fall asleep, be ready, is used in the New Testament. Here's how Jesus puts it in Mark 13. Listen to this. He says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come, referring to his second coming. It's like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his own work. And commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, Jesus says to the disciples, stay awake. For you don't know when the master of the house will come. It could be in the evening, at midnight, when the cock crows, in the morning. Lest he come suddenly and finds you asleep. So I say to you all, stay awake. Similarly, in Matthew 25, Jesus said, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour of his return. Now, ironic, I think, that we come to this concept. You know where I'm going. The day after Harold Camping's prediction that the rapture would take place, it apparently has not, unless it was just him and we're screwed. That's, no, I, I don't think that's the case. Although he hasn't come out of hiding yet. We won't know until he actually shows himself. No. Notice Matthew 25 and Mark 13. You keep watch precisely because you don't know when he's coming. He doesn't say keep watch and figure out when he's coming. He says you don't know when he's coming. That's why you have to keep watching. Keep being vigilant, being ready on the lookout. I mean, if we actually knew when Jesus was coming back, we could goof off until the last day. Jesus doesn't want us to do that, obviously. One other thing we shouldn't miss is a connection. Remember where Paul's going in this passage of Colossians 4? He's very quickly going to get to this theme of how Christians represent and talk about Christ in the world. He's going to ask the Colossians to pray for open doors for the gospel. So we shouldn't miss that as Paul is talking about praying with watchfulness, that he probably also has in mind the need to be on watch for the open doors for the gospel that will come. And then he says, pray thankfully. Pray steadfastly, pray watchfully, and then pray thankfully. Verse 2, with thanksgiving. Now, we've seen so many times in this study That this concept of thankfulness is a major theme. Let Let me just show you again the references. Chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God when we pray for you. That sounds simple enough, except that he's going to keep repeating this theme. Chapter 1, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance. And then he goes on to describe that inheritance and the gifts that Christians have in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 7, he says we should be, in general, abounding in thanksgiving. And then look at chapter 3, three verses, 15, 16, and 17. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And verse 17, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. And then we come to chapter 4, verse 2, where he says, Prayer should be steadfast, watchful, and thankful. Now we've unpacked thankfulness a few times before in this study, but I think it's worth mentioning a few things again by way of remembrance. Remember that when Paul talks about thankfulness, the need for Christians to be thankful and to pray thankfully, it's not just a should. It's not just one of many commandments. Thankfulness is a river that feeds a lot of little streams of the Christian life. It's not just one part of prayer. So, you know, you go through ACTS, Acts, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication, The way Paul puts it here, it's more like the aroma and tenor of our praying. It's what we do when we pray, it saturates every part of prayer. It's part of our requests, it's part of our giving burdens to God, not being anxious, Philippians 4. So he's not just after a general spirit of thankfulness. Like, make sure you Christians are polite to God. Make sure you say your thanks when he surprises you with something nice. No. There's a richness to the thankfulness. You can see in chapter 1 the content of his thankfulness. He's thankful for faith and love and hope and the gospel. What it brings, gospel fruit, gospel growth. It's not just a quick thanks, not just a quick acknowledgement. Remember we said that when Paul gives thanks for the gospel or when he comes to one of the, the results of the gospel, it turns into a tornado of praise. He stops upon that and he spins and out comes all kinds of adjectives and adverbs, gifts, promises that are ours in Christ. It's a thoughtful meditative, energetic rumination of God and his ways and his gifts, the gospel and the results of the gospel. And that's the kind of thankfulness we said that fuels strength in the Christian life. It fuels joy. It fuels endurance in the Christian life. So there are no shortcuts. Tornado of praise is a tornado which spins about with Bible concepts and so it it means a word based, word focused word saturated kind of thankfulness, the word is the fuel for this kind of growing and burning thankfulness about what he's done and what he said, how he, he said it and what he's made us to be even what still awaits us in Christ so pray steadfastly pray watchfully pray thankfully how do we apply that how do we actually do it what does it look like how do we seek to test our prayers to see if there's any semblance of steadfastness and watchfulness and thankfulness well there are many let me just suggest one and then encourage you to think of more at home or in your community group what what these things, steadfast prayer, watchful prayer, thankful prayer, would look like. I think one way we'll know if we're praying steadfastly, watchfully, and thankfully, one way, just one, is if we're not saying the same old prayers in the same old ways with the same old inherited idioms and not really thinking much of what we're saying. Now, if you grew up in church, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are these things we say. And I know that I'm having trouble with this when I begin praying and I'm a ways into praying before I really start thinking of what to say. Do you have a few sentences of cruise control? A few at the beginning, a few in the middle, a few at the end? You can spread it out by putting the word just all throughout your prayers. Lord, we just, just, we just. I I, I know that's a a common one because I hear it. Let me instead suggest you pause before you pray in order to prepare your heart your mind, to gather your thoughts, to think about what this is, what holy priestly work this is, to come into his presence, to ponder that before we start down the path of prayer. And then start praying when you have something to say, when you have goals for that prayer. Or another option would be to not pray right away, but to read just a passage, a scripture. Something from the Psalms, something to get your mind wrapped around what you're doing and what you're trying to do in prayer. So many other ways in which we could test our prayers to see if there is any resemblance of steadfast, watchful, and thankfulness in them. Okay, That's the first thing, a general call to pray. Secondly, we see a call to pray for the gospel spreading. A specific request about Paul's missionary work and there are actually, again, several related requests within this one. He asks that they pray that the gospel would spread freely. Freely. Pray that God, verse 3, may open a door for the word. Pray that God would open a door. Uh, Open door? Yeah, this is an opportunity to proclaim Christ. An opportunity to do it freely. Remember, remember, Like other parts of the world today in the 21st century, Paul's first century world, by and large, would have meant a lot of closed doors for the gospel, a lot of being kicked out of town. He's praying for open doors, that the gospel might be able to go forth. He says in Acts 14 about this open door concept, Luke records, they declared all that God had done and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, I'm going to stay in Ephesus for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. Praying for open doors implies responsibility. If we will dare pray these kind of prayers, we'll have to actually note the open doors that are around us and walk through the ones that are there. And by the way, if you're thinking open door, yeah. What's that chapter, Acts 8, where Philip gets to preach the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch? What a wide-open door there, right? Here's a guy going in his, his little car at the time, reading Isaiah 53, perhaps the best suffering Messiah passage of the Old Testament. And Philip hears it, apparently, runs alongside of it and says, Do you know what you're reading? And he says, Nope. Hop in and tell me. That's not an open door. That's a platter for the gospel, right? That's that's a buffet. I mean, you just, that's the cherry on top. You You just pluck it. It's there. It's easy. So Paul isn't praying for that, and we shouldn't expect that. He just means a chance to proclaim, to proclaim Christ. He wants it to go forth freely. And we should pray for its freeness as well. Now, we shouldn't pray for such freeness that we won't walk through any doors that aren't a mile wide, that aren't the platter on the gospel like Acts chapter 8. But we can pray, as Paul does, for wide open doors, great chances. Doesn't mean that every open door is the best open door. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says he came to Troas to preach the gospel, and even though the door was open for him in the Lord, his spirit wasn't at rest because his brother Titus wasn't there, so he left. Not every open door means you have to. Not every plane ride means you have to witness. I'll just go ahead and let you free on that one, okay? Because some of you are still hung up, like, oh boy, I didn't do it again. They were sleeping. You shouldn't wake them up in Jesus' name. Okay? But there are some open doors. Most of us have the other problem. Oh, that didn't look too open. I don't know. That, that wasn't as wide as I like it. And then we go through life and we never, never walk through any of these open doors. He prays the gospel would be spreading freely. He prays the gospel would be spreading accurately. He asked them, to pray that Paul would declare the mystery of Christ. Literally, it's the mystery which is Christ. Why did Paul say Christ is a mystery? Well, what he means is that the Old Testament wasn't perfectly clear what the hope for the world would be, and how the Messiah would come. That was progressively revealed. That's why you read in the Gospels a lot of confusion. Jesus is right there before them, and they're like, yeah, let's make him king right now. Go get him. Be a a political king. Take over that nation, Rome. He says, no, that's not me. That's not what I came to do. I came to seek and to save that which is lost, and I'm coming back a second time. We know that. For them, it was a little mysterious. I think Paul is also, by using this word mystery, he's picking on these false teachers in Colossae. Remember these false teachers in Colossae were talking about hidden knowledge. We have the hidden knowledge. We'll give it to you if you prove yourself worthy, at least in increments. You do good with that, then we'll give you more later on, and eventually there's this hierarchy like a secret society. I think Paul's mocking That thought and saying, oh, there was a mystery, all right, but the mystery is Christ, and we have made it known. We've made it known broadly, widely, completely. He's here. We know what the mystery is, and it's right out in the open. Now, get this, Paul knows this message. He knows the mystery, which is Christ. He knows how Old and New Testament relate. He knows the shadows of the Old Testament. He already wrote about those in Colossians too. things like circumcision or Sabbath. And yet, though he knows the mystery of Christ better than any of us in here, he prays that he would proclaim Christ Accurately. He also asks that they would pray for the gospel spreading boldly. He mentions in verse 3, this is the gospel, the word, the mystery for which I am in prison. This tells us that open doors don't mean no opposition. In 1 Corinthians 16, I just read that a little bit ago. I read where Paul says, I will stay in Ephesus for a wide door of effective work has opened to me. I didn't read the rest of that verse. He says a wide door was opened wide for the effective work of the gospel and there are many adversaries. Why did he put those together? Well, for one, they so often do go together. Here, at the same time, the same moment, the same breath, the same sentence, Paul is saying the door is wide open here in Ephesus. And I got a lot of adversarial opposition. Sometimes the open door is within a prison cell. Paul talks about that in Philippians 1. He wants the Philippians to know that what has happened to him, his imprisonment, has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel because the whole praetorian guard has now come to hear He gets to sit with people who are forced to sit with him all day and to take turns doing it. And not only that, but other Christians are becoming more bold because of Paul's persecution, because of his imprisonment. They see this thing's worth suffering for. This thing's even worth dying for. They're excited about the gospel success in the midst of suffering. And that makes them more courageous. Open doors doesn't mean no opposition. Sometimes the open door is even within a prison. And yet, Paul, this bold says in Ephesians 6.20, Pray that I would proclaim it fearlessly. I mean... I don't know about you, but, but I have, you know, TV heroes or something like that, movie heroes. You, you, you maybe for a time wanted to be Jack Bauer or something like that. Anything with Denzel Washington, he's a hero of sorts. But I, I have biblical heroes as well, even more so. And you just think of Paul. Like he doesn't wear a robe, wears a cape. This guy, he is praying. This guy is praying that he would proclaim it fearlessly. Paul had to battle timidity. Paul, who said in Philippians, want to live as Christ, die as gain, I don't care. Take your pick. Kill me. And I get to go and be with Jesus. That's great. That guy says, pray that I wouldn't be afraid. That same guy who said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1. Timothy, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear or timidity. He's given us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. So while he's rebuking Timothy, he's writing to the Colossians and saying, Pray that I'd be bold too. Pray that I wouldn't be afraid. He says, Pray the gospel would be spreading clearly, that I might make it clear. Verse 4. So much overlap here, isn't there? Right, he wants to get it accurate. He wants to declare the mystery, which is Christ. And then he also says that I might make it clear. So much overlap. And that alone should tell us something, shouldn't it? It should tell us that he's pained with these things. He, Paul, is pained with a desire to get it right, to proclaim it fully, to represent Christ faithfully. We should be pained with these things even more so. Now, how do we pray like this? Remember, Paul's writing to the Colossians and saying to them in the first century, pray for me and, and my, my guys, my crew, my traveling missionary crew. We don't pray for Paul. Paul's dead. He's been dead for 2,000 years. But clearly this passage applies to us, right? And it says something to us, what does it say? Well, It implies we should pray for our missionaries. We should pray these things for our missionaries. We should be praying these things for Sunday morning preaching at DSC. This should be the case no matter who's preaching, but I'll just selfishly say, I hope you pray for my prep and for my proclamation on Sunday morning. I can't tell you how many times on a Thursday or a Friday morning I am I, I can't figure it out. I can't figure out whether to go in that direction or this direction or to strike out that that big block of stuff I wanted to say. Ah, because there just isn't enough time. I need your prayer. I need your prayer to not say anything stupid that would be a stumbling block to, to some people. Because that happens often, as you know, if you've been here for a while. Pray for the preaching at DSC, do it weekly, do it especially this summer, but not, not just this summer. Pray, pray that God's worth would go forth here freely, accurately, boldly, clearly. Pray these things for DSC and its people as we scatter throughout the week to represent Christ in the world. Pray for boldness and accuracy and clarity and wide open doors for your brothers and sisters, maybe especially those brothers and sisters that you share life with, that you're maybe in community group with or your closer friends here. Pray these things for yourself. Pray these things boldly for yourself and with your family and ask others to pray these things for you. Paul's most frequent prayer request for himself is this, to pray for the proclamation of the gospel, to pray for opportunity, to pray for boldness, to pray for accuracy. That's his most frequent prayer request. I think we'd be in good shape if that was our most frequent prayer requests with each other. Oh, but we already know, right? They already know I'm supposed to be bold and I'm supposed to be clear at work. And, and So, I mean, I could tell them that. Pray that I'd have enough courage. Everyone needs courage. They don't need to pray about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because everyone needs courage, because we're all afraid of getting it wrong, we need to pray. Because there's nothing less than the gospel spreading in this world and the glory of the fame of Christ in this world Because of that, we need to pray and ask others to pray. So if Paul's prayer emphases what he prays for are instructive for us, if those are good models for us, Paul writes letters from Romans to Philemon. And a lot of times at the beginning of a letter, he writes a prayer out. Oftentimes at at the end of a letter, he writes a prayer out. If these prayers are good examples for us about the priority of our praying, And simply put, we need to make prayer for gospel spreading way more a part of our prayers. And then thirdly, verses 5 and 6, there's a call to portray and proclaim the gospel. He says, portray it and proclaim it. Live in the light of the gospel and talk about and declare the gospel. Don't just pray for me. You do it too. Portray and proclaim it wisely walk in wisdom toward each other or toward outsiders rather outsiders clearly being non-christians they're outside the church they're they're in the world notice paul assumes that we're going to be around outsiders he doesn't say keep your distance until they come knocking or only see them as you go door to door or wait for them to come to church he assumes that you're gonna be rubbing shoulders with outsiders but he also assumes that it's going to take wisdom. We've done messages on this concept in the past. I mean, John 17 is a a great passage for that. You can find a message online, I think, where I preach from John 17, that whole concept of being in the world but not of it. What's it mean to be in the world and not of it? What's it mean to be salt and light in this world? Doesn't salt have to touch something in order to have any effect? Doesn't the light have to be somewhere near in order to have any effect? You don't do these things a mile away. And yet, we also want to be careful, to walk wisely, carefully, to continue in holiness, to be purposeful about these relationships with outsiders. It takes wisdom to know How far to go, how long to stay, where to encounter those people. So we pray for wisdom. James 1 5 says, Pray for wisdom, and God will give it to you. He says, Portray and proclaim urgently. He says in verse 5, Making the best use of the time. Remember, Paul asks for prayer, for open doors for the gospel. And now in Colossians 4, verse 5, he's essentially saying, as you pray for open doors, and then as you see those open doors, you got to walk through those open doors. He literally says, redeem the time. Redeem it. Buy it up. It's there. It's going to get used. There's a finite amount of time, and in general, time is short. He is coming back. Buy the time up for the sake of the gospel and use it. Be urgent about it. Portray and proclaim graciously. He says in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. What's this mean, gracious, seasoned with salt? In one sense, it might seem like fairly obvious concepts. Be gracious, seasoned with salt, probably related to being gracious, probably just another way of... Saying it. In another sense, though, this isn't terribly easy to fully get our arms around what Paul's saying when he says that our speech to outsiders should be gracious and seasoned with salt. I think those go together. I think whatever gracious means, seasoned with salt means plus something. What's it mean? Well, put these together, gracious and seasoned with salt, and let me give you a variety of ways in which commentators, scholars who write books on a book like Colossians, would say about these words. Doug Moo says Paul's getting at being wise, even winsome, warm, affectionate, gracious, seasoned with salt. James Dunn says it means attractiveness. The NIV application commentary says this refers to civility, not cocky arrogance. Now get this says it means being witty, amusing, clever, humorous. Oh, wow. Stakes just got higher, right? This job just got harder. I think Sam Storms' is the best. He says it means being as charming as possible without crossing the line into compromise. Write that down. Charming without compromise. Charming without compromise because... Graciousness without the gospel might win friends and influence people, but it gives no eternal salvation hope. People can think you're nice and still ignore Jesus and die in their sins. So graciousness without the gospel is ultimately unloving. And yet gospel without graciousness is hypocrisy. That's how serious it is. It undermines the message that we're proclaiming. If we're not gracious, we imply God isn't gracious with his gospel. So we should respect those to whom we proclaim. We shouldn't be condescending or rude or proud. Think of Eddie Haskell. Remember him? He was calm and cool standoffish, but kind of gracious, like, yeah, you know, he was kind of gracious to, to Miss Beaver, whatever her name was, Cleaver, Miss Cleaver, <laughs> and, and yet so smug and condescending, so proud. I think this means that we shouldn't have canned words only. Our words shouldn't be canned, and our presentation shouldn't be Rigid. We have to be careful here, because on the one hand, many Christians have no good logical answers for their skeptic friend's questions. And that's unfortunate. But other Christians seem to be trying to make up the difference with eight tight logical arguments for each skeptic's question. So it's possible to be a hundred times more logically sound and historically accurate than the non Christian you're talking to, and yet not be gracious. There'll be no salt, no life, no zest, no love. Great, you've won the debate, and they're no closer to heaven. Be careful. I think we should think of 1 Corinthians 13, what Paul says about love there, and love not being easily offended. We should think of Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14 there, where Paul talks about putting on love and forgiving each other and letting our speech be filled with humility and meekness and patience. Or you can just look to the example of Jesus, who I think is the perfect example of gracious, seasoned with salt, Witnessing. Read Jerem Barz's excellent book, Learning Evangelism from Jesus. Or just read the Gospels themselves and see Jesus love and care. Be patient and kind. His words, sometimes being clever and wise, we should work to witness in many ways like Jesus did. And then lastly, portray and proclaim thoughtfully. Do it wisely, urgently, graciously, and thoughtfully that you may know how to answer in verse 6. Of course, very similar is 1 Peter 3. We should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that's in us. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Again, you see here, it can't be canned and rigid and cool, calculating We shouldn't merely try to win the debate. We shouldn't formulaically come up with the answers like like some knocks you get at your door. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons often have an answer. But if you keep picking in one thing, eventually they go, well, I don't know, but I got this guy higher up and he'll come next week and give you the answer. But, But here's what I've been told, and it just seems empty. It seems like it doesn't ring with truth. We shouldn't give our answers like that. And yet, on the other hand, doesn't this passage, Colossians 4 and 1 Peter 3, tell us quite forcefully, we've got to do better about being prepared. If we are being wise toward outsiders, if we're being gracious, if life is seasoned with salt as we rub shoulders with them, they'll ask questions especially as we bring up Christ, especially as we bring up things eternal. They will ask us questions. And so we have to be prepared. You say, you're you're telling me I have to go through an apologetics class and I have to read these books and I have to have an answer for, for all these questions. No, I'm not saying that. I know I feel overwhelmed With topics like this, prayer and proclamation. So I know that you're thinking, as I was thinking as I prepared this, there's too much here. We have to come away with some boiled down points. I need to tell them what they need to do this week because it's too general to say, pray more thoughtfully, more frequently, pray for witnessing, and do it thoughtfully, carefully, boldly, and graciously. It's too much. No, we know what to do. We just don't like the answer. We wish it were a pill that we could just take and swallow and poof, we're evangelists. Poof, we're prayers. You wish it was just this book, right? I promise if you read these 150 pages, you will be a transformed prayer. No book should ever sell itself like that. Because you're not that changed after you read it, are you? We know what to do. Keep doing Bible and prayer and church and growing in thoughtfulness about it and talking about it with other Christians and keep doing that for decades. And then, lo and behold, you'll see some growth in this area. That's it. Just keep reading your Bible for the rest of your life, just keep praying. And don't give up. Just keep talking to each other about the things of God and the questions that we have ourselves with our own Bible. And then talk to unbelievers. I think some of us don't talk to unbelievers about Christ and the cross because we think they have this whole list of questions that we can't answer. But we really don't know for sure because we've never really been asked those kind of questions. We don't really know what they would ask. I remember the summer before we moved to Oxford, England. There I was prepared to go to a secular university, a religion department, where I thought, boy, there are going to be some smart people there and, and a lot of them don't believe the New Testament's the word of God and I'm going to have to give answers for this. And so I remember studying. I remember apologetics, man. I'm going to get my my proofs down. I'm going to I'm going to think through these things. I'm going to have a good answer for every scholarly retort to the to the truth of God's word. And you know what I found instead? A lot of them just couldn't believe that I actually thought that when I prayed, God actually heard me. Many of them just wanted to hear what it's like to read the Bible believing that it's normal. They wanted to hear about the experience of it. I should have known, right? Postmoderns. I was thinking modernly. I was thinking as a modernist, thinking, oh, I'll prove it to them. They didn't care about that. They wanted to hear about what it was like. They wanted to see something of it from the inside. I'm not saying that will always be your experience, but again, many of us don't know because we've never tried to talk.